I came to share with you today a very tough message. It's a message on my battle with bitterness. And if you were here the last time I spoke, if I did this message in series, I would do this one first and that one second. So this would actually be the, the first in the series of what I would do in my story. But I don't want this to be a traumatic message. I want this to be a message that uplifts God and I that we leave here not because of my story, but we leave here because God's work did a wonderful me- uh, work in our lives, and his word is all-powerful. And quick prayer. God, we just want to take this time and dedicate it to you, that your spirit would be free to move, and that we would leave here different the way we came because of your word. And we ask in your name. Amen. For those of you that don't know me, I've grew up most of my life in Alaska. I've been a commercial fisherman, been a construction worker, I've truck driver, mechanic, heavy equipment operator, business owner. I'm also a really avid hunter and fisherman and an avid whitewater rafter. And I, my work in the ministry, I've my wife and I have been operating Copper Float Ministry for over 16 years now, uh, where we take uh, men's and ladies groups out on overnight uh, fishing trips to help the churches start restart their men's programs, and I help build a community through that way. And I've also had the privilege of being a part-time men's pastor. One of the one of the highlights of my jobs. So that's about me. Now, I don't know if you heard this, but this guy decided to take his girlfriend to a football game. This is football season, so we've got to talk about football. Now, this girl has never seen football in her life. So they go to the game, and she's trying to figure out what's going on, and when they're leaving, he says, what did you think? She says, that was stupid. What? She says, the two teams meet out in the field. They flip a coin. They fight for the next two hours, and everybody's yelling, get the quarterback. Hello, it's only 25 cents. It's not worth the fight. What that had to do with the message, I don't know, but they told me in speech class I'm supposed to start with a joke, so I did. (laughs) But now, be honest with you, I'm really an unqualified person speak like this because I'm the one of the few people you will meet that failed speech in two colleges. No joke, two colleges, four (laughs) semesters, four different professors, and I made the pants too short every time. But I do feel like I'm qualified to speak on the subject today. I came to talk to you about the storms of life and the battles of bitterness. If you lived in Alaska in August of 1991, you will remember this news story just flashes over my head here of this beautiful little 11-year-old girl who left her home in Tasmania, Alaska, just outside of Glen Allen. She walked down a quiet country road to meet a friend, and she disappeared. For the next 10 days, there was a massive search going on for her. And on day 10, her body was discovered just a few miles from her home. She had been kidnapped. She had been sexually assaulted, and she had been murdered. That little girl was my daughter. I'm not here to get 
belated condolences or have you feel sympathy for me. I'm here to tell you that we have a great God, a God who has built this incredible universe but loved us, each one of us, individually enough to hang on a cross and die for us. To literally be, be murdered for us. So that he could give us life, life more abundantly, and eternal life. That's the, the God that I want to bring up today. And only a God who loves us that much can take a mess like that and turn it into a message. A test into a testimony, a tragedy into a triumph, and a victim into a victor. That's the God we have. I don't know if you realize this, but we have words for children that lose their parents. They're called orphans. A spouse that loses their mate is called a widow or a widower. But there is no word in the English language or apparently any language on earth that describes the parent that's lost their child. And maybe that's because the loss is without words. <clears throat> Please forgive me if I struggle with emotions as I try to put that loss into words today. This message that I'm sharing in some churches is kind of a politically incorrect message. See, there's a message out there that's sometimes just kind of caught and sometimes it's actually taught that you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You start your, your journey of faith. Your life is going to be wonderful. You're going to live in these beautiful homes. You're going to drive these beautiful cars and God's going to open the storehouses of heaven and rain down the blessing. And we're supposed to be dumb enough to dance in the aisles and sing, let it rain. I do not know what Bible they're reading because every character in, in this book has had some really hard times and God's brought them through it. But I will tell you that if our lives were always wonderful after we accept the Lord, we would not want heaven. We would not want eternity. We would be satisfied to stay in this messed up world and live in this trauma that we live in. <clears throat> Too many Christians believe that they, because of their faith in Jesus Christ that they should have, <clears throat> have smooth sailing. And one of the best examples I saw of this is this beautiful instrument right here. This is called a sexton. This is what they did the celestial navigation with on the old sailing ships. If you were a navigator, you would come out on the deck on a clear night and you would look through this eyepiece right here. And this first thing is a divided screen. One's a clear lens that goes out towards the horizon. Another one is a mirror that reflects on this one and reflects the heavens. And you would find the, the, like the Polaris star or something like that that would uh, be used for navigation. And you would get that in focus on the one side, and you'd crank this micrometer until you got the horizon in the center. And then you could work out your position on the map. There's a trick to this thing. You have to use it in the good times. When it's clear skies, there's only a time you're going to see this. But you would know as a, a navigator that the storms are coming. And when the storms come, the clouds 
or the heavens are obscured, and now you are on dead reckoning. And there's a really good reason why the sailors called it dead reckoning. Ships crash, sailors die. The point for us today is I believe the storms of life are coming for all of us. We need to know our position. We need to know our direction. We need to look to the heavens for our answers. And we do not need a section. We need our scriptures. We're going to start in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi. We're going to start at chapter 3, 14, and we're going to work our way backwards. And then we're going to come and work our way forward, and you'll either understand my logic for this, or you'll understand why I failed speech so often in college. (laughs) But I need to tell you about the people in Malachi. This is the children of Israel. They're returning from captivity. They're rebuilding their lives. They've rebuilt the temple. The worship is established. But these people are bitter people because they've suffered a great loss. See, captivity represents that your country lost a war and you got taken as a slave. And you were there for some time and then were finally released. But you see, Israel's captivity was brought on by God because they had turned their back on God. And Israel seemed to go through this cycle that they would be in the, under God's authority and worshiping God, and then they would go and fall into uh, turning their back on God, and God would take them into captivity. They'd come back to God, they'd come back to their land and be worshiping God, and they'd go through the cycle over and over again. Don't be too critical, because we do that in our lives. It's very easy to do that. So these people, I want to just read to you a quick little passage out of Isaiah, and this is kind of what they suffered. And everyone who was captured was thrust through, and all who were caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted, their lives ravished. Behold, I will raise up the Medes against them, and they will not regard silver, and as for gold, gold, they will not delight in it. Their bows will dash the young men to pieces before their eyes. They will have no mercy on the womb. They will have no compassion on the children. This is what the people have suffered. They have been, as the enemy armies would come in and besiege the city, they would attack, they burn, bash, destroy the gates down, and there would be this huge sword and shield battle inside the gates. And if the army took control of that gate, they would run inside the, the first street and they would run down inside the wall And if the next group of soldiers were holding their own, now they had a battle between two fronts. And that group would fall and they'd work their way around the city. Then they started going house to house because how the soldiers were paid was by spoil. And so if you would imagine this family would be in there, they would have their older parents in there. They'd bash the door down, they'd grab the man, they'd pin him up against the wall and they want to know what skills he has. If he has a skill that's valuable as a slave, he's going into captivity. They would look at his older parents and say, they're not going to make the march back to the homeland. And they would slaughter them before their eyes. They would look at their young children and say, they're not going to make it. And they would slaughter them. So the only people that went into captivity would be uh, young to middle-aged parents, usually, and teens or preteen kids. 
This is what these people have suffered because they turned their back on God. And now they're coming, they're turning, returning, and they're rebuilding their lives. But I want you to notice three things. Number one, these are grieving people. And people of faith, grief lasts a very long time. Don't think that people will get over it quickly. Mike and Sabrina, it will seem like in a short time that they're over it. They're not over it. They'll be grieving for a long time. For a long time, I couldn't go to the school games because I always wondered what sport my daughter would play on and what position she'd play. I couldn't go to the graduation because I knew I'd not see that milestone of my daughter walking down the aisle and getting her diploma. In all the years, I only went to one of her friend's weddings. And that young lady used to go to church, and she was having babies. And only on one occasion did I hold that little baby, and I just all I could do to not burst out in tears. Grief lasts a long time. These are also religious people, but not necessarily people of faith, and there's a very big difference. You see, religion is working or following rules or traditions to get approval from God. It's using God as a good luck charm. It's not a relationship by grace. And I just want you to know, religion's a poor hobby, and if you need a hobby, go buy a boat. Don't make the mistake thinking, Dave, we're, we're fundamental Christians, we've been saved by grace, we're not religious. We fall off the religious horse in a heartbeat. Because there's things that we will do only because... It's tradition or to get favor of God. I know I was there. <clears throat> there was a time in my life, in my battle of bitterness, that I came to church every Sunday morning like some of you have. I sat in the same place as you sat. I sang songs. We'd sing, this, this is my father's world. And outside, I'd be looking pretty good. And inside, I'd be saying, <laughs> yeah, right. There was a time that I traded my faith, my faith in for religion. And it was the dumbest trade I made in my, ever made in my life. I'll talk about more about this later. So we've established the grieving people, the religious people, but the worst problem is these are bitter people. People of faith... When the storms of life happen, you have a choice. You can get bitter or you can get better. And it's a choice you have to make. See, psychology may say, well, because of these things, they couldn't help but be bitter. God would not have indicted them in this passage for their bitterness if they could not help it, if they had no choice. I believe life is 10% about what happens to you and 90% about what you choose to do with it. You have a choice, get better or get better. So let's look in here in Malachi 3.14. Here's what they say. It is vain or it's worthless to serve God. What good has it done that we've walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts and kept his ordinances? You hear the bitterness there? They say, what could it do? God still let it... The storms happen. They let captivity happen. We were, should have been good enough. We were God's chosen people. Why did he do that? 
in chapter 3, verse 13, that says, your words have been stout against me. But they say, what have we spoken so much against you? They sound kind of like back-talking teenager kid. What do you mean, God? What have we spoken so much against you? Chapter 3, verse 7, he says, return unto me and I'll return unto you. And they say, wherein will we return? What do you mean, God? Where, where do we have to come back to? See, bitter people believe that where they are is okay. They believe by their bitterness, they hold power over the people that hurt them. But they really hurt themselves and those that are around them. Chapter 2, verse 17, it says, You've wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and where is the God of justice? You see, let's take this apart. First, when, they, when they're calling evil good, it is questioning God's authority. Does God have the right to say, that's wrong? Kind of reminds me, I heard there's these billboards showing up on the highways in Texas. Signed God, and some are pretty good. One of them says, what part of thou shalt not did you not understand? Signed God. And then my personal favorite, don't make me come down there. Signed God. See, this is questioning God's authority. But even worse, they say, where is the God of justice? Where's God? It kind of reminds me of the politicians on 9-11. They walked out of the Capitol and put their hands there and go, where's God? And I want to say, well, dummy, you threw him out of our court and you threw him out of our school system. Why do you want to know where he's at? That wasn't nice. But you see, this is questioning God's character. This is questioning whether God is really in control. And see, I hear stories. I got one on the internet a while back of these girls were out shopping late at night. They go out to their car. They get in the car. They turn the key and it doesn't start. They see some strange guys coming, so they manually lock the door. These guys come up and they tap on the door and say, you might as well come out of there. That car's not going to start. These two girls started praying. They turned the key. The car started. They tore out of there, drove home. They came in the house almost in hysterics. They're telling their dad what happened. Dad goes and opens the hood, and the battery cable was cut. And somehow, the battery <coughs> cables touched enough to start. Now, stories like that tempt me to say, God, why didn't you bring somebody along in time to save my daughter? But you see, it's questioning the character of God. It's questioning whether God is really in control. And it's a question that doesn't have an answer. But by that question, I drove myself to the brink of a nervous breakdown. Chapter 1, verse 13. They said, what a weariness it is to serve God. See, they see serving God as a pain and not a pleasure. They see it as something that they have to do, not something that they get to do. They have not learned the verse that says, they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up like wings of eagles. They'll walk and not grow weary. 
but run and not faint. But people of faith, I'm going to tell you something. Losing the battle with bitterness is exhausting. It'll wear you out. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, Who will shut the doors of my temple for nothing, or who will kindle a fire on my altar for nothing? You see, these people will not serve God unless they see some benefit to it. You know, we hear the, these preachers on the radio or TV from time to time, it's to send me $100 and God will, will bless you a hundredfold. You know, if I believed that nonsense, I would have stopped at Walmart and bought myself a $5 plastic airplane. And I would have found one of these young guys that just left, and I would have gave it to him and said, God, did you see that? Now, I'm not asking for much. How about a 180-horse Super Cub and Thunder Tires? Hey, come on, give give me a break. I didn't ask for a Learjet. Bitter people give to get, not give because they love other God. Now this scene is rather black, it's rather bleak, and it's rather dark. But you know what? Throughout history, throughout the Bible, no matter how black and how dark a time of history has been, God has always had a remnant. And we find that in chapter 3, verse 16. It took almost three chapters of God talking about what's going wrong and there's these two verses about the remnant then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another and the Lord hearkened and heard it and a book of remembrance was written before him for those that feared the Lord and thought upon his name they will be mine says the Lord of hosts in that day when I make up my jewels I will spare them as a father spares his own son that serves him Quite a different picture than what we've heard before. So now what happened? Were these people, this remnant, were they just fortunately on vacation when the captivity happened? Not likely. Or maybe their doors were stronger and the soldiers just couldn't bash it down. (laughs) I don't think so. Oh, Dave, maybe they're really spiritual people. They got in their prayer group and they prayed and the soldiers just let them go. That's the wrong answer. These people were one of two groups of people. They were either people that had turned their back on on God in captivity. They learned their lesson. They came back to God. They came back all the way. They didn't stop the religious. They came all the way to faith. Or they were people of faith, and they were taken into captivity anyway. The storms of life happen sometimes because we make bad choices. And they sometimes they happen because somebody else makes a bad choice and we get sucked right into the vortex. That does not question the character of God. That does not question whether God's in control. And these people know God and they still love Him because it starts then. Actually, then would have been better translated, but. So here's all this bad stuff. But those that feared the Lord, these people still love God. Their faith is in God. And they're with them all the way. It says they spoke often one to another. It doesn't say what they spoke about, but I don't think it's talking about how badly God failed them. 
It must be about their love and about how God carried them through this time because of the next line. It says the Lord hearkened and heard it. The word hearken is actually the word like prick up the ears. And then heard is listen intently. So in the din of these people complaining about God, we were good enough, why did this happen? What are you, kind of God are you? God hears the prayer meeting of these people and says, isn't God a good God? Doesn't God love us? Isn't God in control of our lives? And then there's this real line that says, and thought upon his name. Now that sentence gave me a little trouble, and so as I looked at the word thought, I found out it was typically translated regard. And I, we heard it when I was telling you about the, reading about the army taking over Israel. It says they will not regard silver. And I still didn't get it until I, heard, I read the book on the histories of potluck. The origin of potluck is not the nice fellowship meal that churches have. The origin of potluck is when an army was attacking the gates, the poor people would make the best meal they knew how to prepare. They'd put it in a pot and they'd put it outside the door before they barricaded the door. And it was kind of one of those unwritten laws that if you were a soldier and you took of that pot, you had to be a little nicer to the family than you would somebody who stiffed you. But on the rich side of town, they didn't put food in it. They put money in it. In fact, the book was suggesting that the, the Battle of Jericho, when Achan took the gold and the silver and the garments, it was a potluck. In fact, tradition says it was buried in a pot in his tent. That's how he knew where to dig it up. It was a bribe. Okay, what this verse is saying, what it was saying about they won't regard silver, they're not placing a high value on it. They're there to do a job. What it says here is these people love God and they place a high value on his name. You don't do that being a religious, bitter person. You do that being a person of faith. And then he says, these will be mine. I will gather them like jewels. God sees the value of the remnant. Now, what's the difference of these group of people? Where did this first group go wrong? Do they go wrong in chapter 314 when they're saying it's vain, it's worthless to serve God? Do they go wrong when their words are bitter against God? I don't think so. Do they go wrong in chapter 217 where they question the character or the authority of God? I don't think so. Do they go wrong when they won't serve God unless there's some benefit to them? No. They go wrong in chapter 1, verse 2. God says, I've loved you, yet you say, wherein have you loved us, God? This is how you become bitter people. It's when you come to the point that you say, God, how could you do this? Don't you love me? It's the first step for bitterness. And let me tell you, if the storms of life cause you to question God, you're headed for a shipwreck. And bitterness is an ugly shipwreck. I was there. How I got there. First, during the time of the search and all that, God was reminding me over and over again that he loved me. 
And for a while, I was getting the message. We searched for my daughter for 10 days. And during that search, I walked into the rescue center in the fire hall, and they had this big map up there, and they had all these areas marked off. They were searching, and I'm looking at it. And what's left to search (laughs) didn't make any sense that she would have been there. And I felt this need to be alone. I always had people gathering around me trying to help me and encourage me. But I felt this urge to be alone. So I slipped out the side door of the fire hall, and I'm walking down this ATV trail in the Copper Basin. And a beautiful fall day in the Copper Basin, the aspen trees are all in their full fall colors of reds and greens and yellows and oranges, a beautiful blue sky. I had no idea what I was going to do when I got alone. But as I'm walking, I started crying like I've never cried before. And I had this tightness in my chest, kind of like what I built up this wall to hold my emotions. I just felt like it crushed. And I started crying like I've never cried before. And it felt like it crushed again, and it'd be another wave of it. And I'm walking along, and soon my eyes are just full of tears, and this beautiful scene is just a kaleidoscope of blurred colors. And then I remembered the words of the old hymn, Does Jesus Care? And I started singing. Trust me, I won't sing now. I started singing, Does Jesus Care? When my heart is pained too much for mirth or song, when the burdens press, cares distress, and the great days go weary and long, does Jesus, does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? Till my sad heart aches, till it nearly breaks, does Jesus care? I had the lines all mixed up, but I just walked along singing what I remembered. And then I remembered the chorus. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. When I started that chorus, I felt a hand come up on my shoulder. I didn't know who he was. To be honest, I really didn't care who he was. I was walking along in the middle of a meltdown. And I just walked along crying and singing. Oh, yes, he cares. When I felt like I got it under control, I stopped, closed my eyes, wiped my tears, took a few deep breaths to see who this was who was walking with me. And when I turned and looked, there was no one with me. I was walking alone, but I felt the presence of God's hand on my shoulder saying, he's walking beside me. He's feeling my pain. The verse I clung through in this time was Hebrews 4.15. Please allow me to paraphrase it a little bit. Oh, we do have a high priest who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities, was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Because of this, let us boldly approach the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Was I in a time of need? What did I need? I needed to find the grace. 
and know that God was walking with me through that time. As powerful as that story is, I have to admit, when I went into the battle of bitterness, I chose to forget this. I let myself drift. Believe me, I had reasons for my bitterness. I told you we searched for her for three, for ten days. Took three months to make an arrest. Two years going to trial. Suffering through the trash, the victim, defense. Six months waiting for sentencing. Seven years in appeals processes to have the case overturned on a technicality. And while we were preparing to go to trial again, the suspect died in prison. But during this time, things were getting really bad in my life. My first wife fell very deeply into mental illness very early, and within a very short time, her body would hold literally hundreds of scars from self-inflicted injuries. And to this day, I don't know how I survived it, how she survived it. I would get a visit from the state social worker that says, your wife's mental illness is traumatizing your children. And if it happens again, we're going to take the children from your home. In a move that I hoped would save my wife's life, I went to the state trooper's office on a very low day and signed the papers to allow them to arrest her and take her to the state mental institution against her will. It saved her life when I lost my marriage. She never did recover. And in this time, I spent many years with having some well-meaning, sometimes not well-meaning people in the church giving me these senseless cliches, these pat answers, all the while passing some very horrible rumors and judgments about me. And I spent time sitting in church like some of you sitting, outwardly looking okay, but inwardly saying, why, God? What did I do to deserve this? Like he owed, like he owed me an answer. And bit, bit by bit, I built a prison one bad thought at a time. Each, each of these thoughts about ways to, that I would like to get even with the guy who killed my daughter, with the people that said such horrible things about me, and with my church. I built this prison wall so high that no light could get in. I was miserable. I was angry, and I was horrible to live with. What brought me out of this was once seeing how far I actually fell. And then I had to start. Where I started many years ago in Sunday school, the very verse, verse I learned was, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And as... I was tempted to build another layer of walls on my prison. I'd have to keep telling myself as these thoughts would come up, God so loved the world and for God so loved Dave LaBelle.
The first step was coming back to my faith and coming back to the fact that God loved me. The second step was finding my place for service. If you are battling bitterness, you will never have victory until you are in the service of the king. And that's when I found a way. It started basically on an accident, but I found a way to use my love for whitewater rafting as a way to minister to people that started Copper River Float Ministry. But over 16 years now, we've seen men accept the Lord on the river. We've seen, seen men rededicate their lives. We've seen men come clean with affairs and addictions. We've been able to help them, get them help and get them turned around. Because I found my place in service. And finally, I had to make a choice to leave my pain and my bitterness at the foot of the cross. See, at the cross, you cannot be unforgiving. You, you cannot be bitter. You cannot be unloving. And you cannot be simply religious. When we realize the loss that it took to, for Jesus to hang on the cross to give us life and life more abundantly, we can't stay in our misery. Calvary may be on a hill called Golgotha, but the foot of the cross is level ground. No one at the foot of the cross is any better than the others. Billy Graham came to the cross the same way you and I came to the cross, a broken person, messed up, that needed restoration and needed healing. If you think the cross can't help you in your time of need, you have a very weak view of the cross. You have a very weak view of the gift that God has gave you. And in that, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. That would have been a relief in my battle of bitterness. So I had to make a choice to release the prisoner from the prison I built and let God be God and let God be the judge. And you know what I found out? When I released the prisoner, I found out the prisoner was me. I hadn't hurt anybody but myself and my family during this time. And by returning to my faith, didn't bring my daughter back. <laughs> but de neither did my bitterness. My bitterness just made me miserable. How much better would our lives, would our marriages, would our homes' lives be if we could just release the bitterness and let God be God? That's what led me out of my battle of bitterness. So I still have my battles, trust me. Just about the time you think the battle's won, the insurgents attack somewhere and you start having another battle of bitterness. So it's a lifelong battle. But it's a battle we need to win. 
Because God needs a remnant. God needs a group of people that are faith-talking, faith-walking, faith-living people. And Satan would love nothing more for our homes and our churches to be buried in bitterness and ineffective for him. During this time in my life, I was studying Job. And I've read this dialogue, I don't know how many times, between God and Job. I'm going, what was this magical point that Job came to that released him and God gave back? And I'm, watching, I'm reading this thing, and basically it comes, Job's in this storm of life, and he's saying, God, where are you? You've got to show up. You've got to explain yourself. Finally, God shows up. And he says basically to him, okay, smarty pants, you know how this should go? I'm going to build a world. Tell me how big the foundation should be. And Job's going, I don't know. And you look through this, and there's no answer in the dialogue. And I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm trying to figure it out. And I finally found it. It was in Job 42.10. When Job prayed for his friends, God gave Job back twice what he had before. You see this? These friends came in. They had helped Job build this battle of bitterness. When God turned Job's captivity is when he turned back to a God who loves him and says, God, you be God. I'm not. And I want you to forgive my friends. Maybe it's time for somebody besides me to surrender to the love of God, the love of the Savior once again, and to give up the battle of bitterness. Maybe it's time for us to release our prisoner. Maybe it's time to make a statement like Ronald Reagan said to Gorbachev. Tear down the wall. <laughs> Tear down the wall, release the prisoner, and you will find release. Maybe it's time for us to come to the altar at the foot of the cross and pray for forgiveness of our bitterness. Because our bitterness is the sin. I believe if we do this, we will have our lives radically dynamically and totally changed by our faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection. No matter how dark that time has been, God has always had a remnant. And people, we're living in a dark time right now where evil is prevailing. God is still in the throne. God is still in control. And God still needs a remnant. God still needs people that have been through the storm and come out the other side with their faith intact. Let's bow for a minute. People of Clearwater, while your heads are bowed, God has promised us to give us life and life more abundantly and eternal life through him.
Where are you at? Are you one of the remnant? 